Most people have heard about cryptocurrencies and NFTs, of course, but most people also don't appreciate that these are but two examples of many different types of digital assets. Blockchain gives us the ability to express ownership and transfer ownership of digital assets. Digital assets are a fundamental building block of the Web3 world. Welcome to W3B Talks, an ongoing exploration of the impact of Web3 and blockchain technologies on business, government, and society. I am your host, Doug Heintzman, and I'm the Chief Catalyst at the Blockchain Research Institute. In this episode, we're going to explore the world of digital assets and try to better understand their role in the emerging business landscape. And to guide us on this journey, I am delighted to welcome Alex Tapscott to the podcast. Alex is the Managing Director, Digital Asset Group at Nine Point Partners. He is the co-author of Blockchain Revolution and the editor and co-author of Financial Services Revolution and Digital Asset Revolution. Alex is also the co-founder of the Blockchain Research Institute. Welcome to the podcast, Alex. Well, happy to be here. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Um, throughout this series, we've been kind of exploring, you know, what W3 is, what Web3 is all about, and what blockchain's role in that is. And, you know, one of the one of the themes we always kind of keep on coming back to is that, you know, blockchain's ability to enforce digital scarcity and to keep a, an immutable record of transactions, what, you know, what we call the state, that that, that really is a, it's a big deal. And, Amongst the things that it enables are these things that we're calling digital assets. And, and you know, in the parlance of, of blockchain and Web3, we call them tokens. So um, I, I'm wondering, can you help us just before we really kind of dive into this, can you help us understand what, what a digital asset really is? Yeah, absolutely. Well, that was actually a terrific introduction, Douglas. Basically, um, what we're what we're dealing with now is uh, sort of a new era of the web. That's the way that we think about it at the Blockchain Research Institute, and that's the way I think that uh, more and more people are, uh, you know, viewing this new industry. Which is that for decades we've had um, an Internet of Information, and that's been great for you know for moving and storing information, for democratizing access to information, but it actually wasn't very good for moving and storing assets. And that's because the internet was not really ever designed um, to program scarcity. So when you send someone information online, whether it's an email, you tweet something, you blog, or you know post something online, um, you can create copies of it and send it to someone else. Now, that's great when it comes to information, it sort of democratizes information, but when it comes to things that have value, it's a big problem. Um, and basically what's required is for people to be able to trust that when they receive something of value online, that it's the only one of its kind. And that's the double spend problem that no doubt many listeners have heard about. That's been very tricky. And that's been solved thanks to the invention of blockchains. Uh, blockchains are you know, really the back end uh, for Web3 and for digital assets. They are decentralized ledgers that uh, give anybody the ability to see and verify that transactions are uh, final and accurate and that the things that they own, they actually own. And that's, um, you know, big innovation. So digital assets themselves are manifestations of digital scarcity in Web3, and they can really represent just about anything. Um, if you think about, you know, the website as sort of the killer application 
for the first era of the web. And maybe, um, you know, I don't know, blogging or file sharing is a killer application for the second era of the web. Then when it comes to web three, really it's tokens that are the killer application. And um, if a website is a container for information, a token is a container for value or a container for assets. And uh, it can contain basically anything of value. The first iteration of blockchains, the first killer app would be, would be Bitcoin, you know, which is designed to be a form of currency, you know, a way to store value and to move money that's not reliant on governments and banks. And that's a really interesting use case, but it's one of many use cases. Um, the token as a, as a container can be programmed to hold just about anything. And this is something that we spent a lot of time researching at the BRI and have included in books uh, and papers and speeches and, and the like, trying to help people understand just what exactly that um, taxonomy of digital assets looks like. Okay. So, okay. So let's, let's start there. I mean, a, a lot of, I'm sure that a lot of the audience has of course heard about cryptocurrencies and you mentioned Bitcoin being one of them. Um, mm. And they've probably also heard about NFTs, uh, which is, you know, has been, you know, quite a bit of hype about for the last year and a half or so. So yeah. <clears throat> those are obviously two types of digital assets, but you mentioned a taxonomy. Uh, can you kind of fill in the, the landscape? I mean, so we've got cryptocurrencies and we've got NFTs and we can circle back and kind of explore those in a little more depth. But just before we do that, what's, what's the broader landscape? Look, give us some examples of some of these tokens that you're referring to. Yeah, well, um, a token can come to represent just about anything. And I think that it's important not to get uh, overly um, focused on what, what's out there today. Oftentimes when there's a new technology, the first iterations of that new technology are what they call skeuomorphic. In other words, they resemble things from the era before that technology existed. So in, with the internet, a lot of the early examples of, you know, web pages and email, uh, you know, online catalogs, classifieds, et cetera, these were all things that existed before they were just moved online. So what we're seeing in the digital asset space um, is a lot of the early examples are things that are trying to sort of recreate what existed previously. Having said that, we've done the analysis and, and uh, basically concluded that if you look at the entire market size of all digital assets, they fall into one of nine different categories. So I mentioned, uh, and that's the taxonomy that I was referring to. So you, I mentioned cryptocurrencies. Uh, you know, money is something that's very specific in what it's trying to do. It's trying to be a medium of exchange and a store of value in a unit of account. And Bitcoin, I think over time has demonstrated that it's a store of value, if, a vol if, if not a volatile one. And um, it is a medium of exchange. Whether or not it ever becomes money in the way that, you know, dollars or money, we'll see. But that's one of nine different categories. The other categories are things that would be familiar as well to people who are, um, you know, coming at this from, from a traditional perspective. One example would be something like a securities token. So a securities token is a digital asset that represents uh, security and a security can be any financial asset, right? So something like a stock gives you a share of a common enterprise, a bond, it gives you uh, you know, stream of cash flows and the promise of a repayment down the road. Any of the business logic of, of assets in, the, in traditional markets can be programmed into digital goods, right? So that container could include shares, the container can include bonds. Another thing is a stable coin. A stable coin is a digital asset that tracks the value of some other asset in the traditional 
world, most typically it is a uh, currency like the U.S. dollar. So there are there's about 150 billion dollars of circulating supply of stable coins, and almost all of that tracks the dollar. But there's no reason why it couldn't track something else. Um, you know, Facebook launched a project called Libra that was intended to basically be a, a global currency backed by a basket, and they ran into some problems with the government and had to abort that. Interestingly, the the founding team from Libra are now out with their own project called Aptos, which is already a top 50 project in the space. So maybe a missed opportunity by a, by a Web2 legacy company. Um, but stable coins really are designed to be you know, payment system that uses digital assets. So for global payments, it can take days, sometimes weeks to settle transactions between people, depending on their banking relationship or lack thereof. Um, and stable coins allow people to move money in, in, in the form of dollars peer to peer and instantly in a matter of seconds. So there are huge opportunities inside of digital use cases in the, in the digital asset world, but also more in the more general uh, sense for the for the economy as a whole, for moving money around the world, right? Whether that's between businesses on different sides of a border, people on different sides of the border, doesn't really matter. Another really interesting asset that we've spent a lot of time on are called uh, natural asset tokens. So natural asset tokens are a way to tokenize some physical good in the real world, typically a commodity. And one really interesting example of this are uh, is carbon. Um, carbon is a, you know, something that is created by virtue of burning fossil fuels. It's the you know, big externality of, uh, of industrial production and of transportation and so forth. And it's also the thing that um, you know, is warming the planet. And if we don't do something about reducing the carbon in the atmosphere, then the world might become inhospitable for large parts of the population. So this is the kind of thing that we need to sort out um, uh, right away. There has been a, a real sort of lack of um, of, of consensus around carbon credits. There are various different standards, different parts of the world, and there's no sort of global registry. Well, a blockchain is a decentralized ledger of transactions that um, is globally accessible, is trusted, um, that anybody can access, but no single entity you know, can alter or, or manipulate. And that kind of technology is a really great basis for creating a global decentralized carbon registry, right? So there are lots of really interesting projects, many of which I think are going to be actually presenting at W3B um, on this very subject, which is how can we use Web3 tools like tokens to solve global problems? How can we use them to create a market solution, perhaps, to um, something that until now has not had a way to, to be captured by a market? And that to me is really exciting as well. Um, some of the ones, some of the other kinds of assets in the taxonomy that are not skeuomorphic, they're not based on you know, the way the world used to work, but rather on something really uh, novel and new are things like governance tokens. So a governance token is the native asset of a decentralized application. And so what does that mean? So basically a lot of web three projects and applications are trying to, to recreate or, or do better what uh, traditional software does today, but in a decentralized and trustless way. And basically all that means is that they run on a blockchain. They don't require a central party uh, to uh, act as a trusted intermediary, and they're difficult to shut down or to censor. Right. So anything that is you know centralized and domiciled somewhere and has a trust and acts as a trusted third party is easily shut. It can easily be shut down or censored, and that's true. And 
lots of different parts of the world. So these decentralized applications are sort of by their nature uh, exist as software. And so they need a different kind of way to represent value. Instead of shares, they use this thing called the governance token. And a governance token basically gives uh, holders certain economic rights and as well as certain uh, say into how a, a piece of software is run. And what's different about governance tokens compared to say shares in a company is that by act by being an early adopter of a new service you can actually earn a share in that very thing a good example of this is you know when i was uh, 19 years old, 18 years old, Facebook was invented. <laughs> and I was one of the first 1 million people on Facebook. And, uh, you know, I joined Facebook and I, I've, you know, befriended hundreds of people and I started to, uh, you know, update my profile. This is before the newsfeed, but, you know, I was posting stuff and, and adding content and, uh, you know, in no small part because of me and millions of other people who were doing something similar, college students in the U S at the time, you know, we helped to create the network effects that made Facebook really valuable. And in the end, we didn't get to participate in any of the upside. I mean, we got access to a free service, um, but Facebook still harvests my data and, um, you know, still resells that data and still looking for ways to exploit it. And uh, I didn't get to sort of own a piece of that thing without buying the shares in the company when it went public. I didn't get a say in how it was governed. Um, and, you know, I think that's a model that could use improving. And so that's what Web3 um, uh, applications promise to do, which is that if you're an early adopter of a platform, you can earn a share of that platform. You can have a say in how it's run. And I think that's a really uh, innovative and quite novel development that I think will help a lot of these applications grow and compete with their more centralized counterparts. So I could keep going, Douglas. There's lots yeah, of no, other as far as you've gone there, just just once again to help us set the table here, so to speak. Um, in your taxonomy, there's a bunch of words that I'm sure a lot of people have heard about, right? Bitcoin, Ether, BNB, Tether. Can you just just help us slot each one of those into one of those buckets just to give us a, a touch point for them? Sure. Say them one more time. BNB, Tether, and well, what? Bitcoin, Ether, BNB, Tether. The, the, those are the top four um, you know, crypto assets out there. Great. Yeah. So Bit let's start with Bitcoin. Bitcoin is a cryptocurrency. Um, it is designed to be a digital uh, store of value and a way to move money peer to peer. It was originally designed as peer to peer cash, but I think has morphed over time to be sort of gold for the digital world. You know, if gold was this, um, this commodity that had no intrinsic value, but was scarce and, and hard for governments to control, then Bitcoin has a similar sort of role and domain in the digital world, right? Okay. That's, I think, the easy what, what, what about Ether? About Why is Ether different? Yeah, Ether is different because um, from the get-go, Ether was designed to do more than what Bitcoin does. So you can think of Bitcoin as a single-purpose technology. Um, you know, it was it, the Bitcoin network and the blockchain that um, that is the back end for the Bitcoin network is designed to move and store Bitcoin um, and to do so securely and peer to peer. And it does that really, really well. But that's all it's designed to do. A lot of people looked at Bitcoin in the early days and thought, hey, you know, the idea of peer to peer value transfer and, and digital uh, ownership is really interesting. Why don't we try and like program the Bitcoin network to do other stuff? We'll we'll um, we'll develop these things called colored coins where we'll take Bitcoins, but we'll color them and we'll program them to do different things. So maybe they can do shares in a company. Maybe they can do natural asset tokens or stable coins. And all of those projects failed. And the reason for that is simply that 
the Bitcoin network was never designed to support those kinds of applications, right? It's like trying to call up, a, you know, get an Uber ride on your pocket calculator, like those just incompatible uh, kinds of technology. So Ethereum emerged um, as a potential solution to that. And Ethereum was designed from the beginning to be a general purpose platform, meaning that you could program um, any kind of asset to be moved and stored and, and uh, programmed on, on top of the network. So the protocol, uh, it's called a protocol token versus a cryptocurrency. So the Ethereum network has a native token called ETH. And you can basically think of the Ethereum network as you know a vast city grid. And on the city grid, there's all these different um, applications that are running. And those applications are like the cars, right? And one car is moving you know, securities and other cars moving natural asset tokens and other cars moving stable coins. And another one is moving NFTs. And another one is running a on-chain video game, which is a popular new application set. And in order to run all these cars on the network, you need fuel. And so ether is known as gas on the network. And basically you fill up the car with ether and that allows you to run transactions on the network. It's basically like a transaction cost, but instead of being paid to an intermediary, it's being paid to the network as a whole. So the network is growing in, in size and stakeholders in the network are participating in that upside, but it's not a centralized intermediary that's capturing all the value. So if you think about the Ethereum network, if, if Web3 applications grow and become super popular and drive millions of users and enterprise adoption, all things, by the way, I think are occurring now and will continue to occur, then the demand for the gas uh, to run those transactions, to, to fuel those cars is going to increase. And if the demand goes up while the supply remains fixed, the price will go up. So that's like the investment case for Ethereum. People sort of see a relatively fixed supply, but a clear demand pull coming from all this Web3 application development. Um, so that's protocol tokens. So I hope that sort of draws a clear distinction between something like Bitcoin, which is really a single asset token. Um, something like BNB is a bit of a hybrid because at, on one hand, it was created by a company called Binance, which is a centralized exchange. And the token has tons of utility in that centralized exchange as a way to, you, you earn tokens, for example, by doing transactions. Um, you can use those tokens to get access to uh, you know, better deals, better liquidity. Uh, you can use it as part of a referral program. So really it's kind of like a loyalty point on steroids in that respect. But Binance also has developed its own blockchain called the Binance Smart Chain that uses the BNB token in the same way that Ethereum uses the ETH token, right? So it's a bit of a two-handed or two-sided coin. Um, and that's why it's so extremely valuable. As an exchange token, I don't know how valuable it would be if that was its only use case, probably about, I would say, half as valuable um, today because it's also supporting lots of applications. Uh, it's able to capture more value in the same way that Ethereum has. And then you mentioned the final thing, Tether. Tether is a stable coin. It's a US dollar stable coin. It's designed to hold a peg to the US dollar and it's used as the one of the three dominant uh, stable coins in the blockchain ecosystem. And now increasingly is used as a way to move money between um, individuals and businesses across borders, in addition to its use case in the digital asset world. One company that we work closely with at the Blockchain Research Institute, for example, helps uh, in multinational companies operating in markets in Africa basically repatriate dollars to the US and they do so using stable coins like Tether, for example. So it's not just something that's used in digital assets, it's something that's also used increasingly by enterprises as well. Okay, so in that description, the, um, 
you talked about uh, BNB as being kind of a bit of hybrid, and yeah, um, you know, I, I've been watching the phenomena, and, and I was I was sitting having dinner with my son, and he's sitting there with his Robinhood application, and he, he's trading, you know, Ethernet. Or it's not Ethernet. He's trading, my goodness, that dates me. Um, he's trading trading Ether, you know, back and forth, maybe five or six times while we're having dinner, and uh, and he's he is actually a Web three person and and really fully understands it. But I think there's a lot of people out there that are going in and out of these positions, or at least have been for the last few years, that really may not even have any idea about the fact that something like Ether is a utility, you know, token and and it actually is an internal currency that's used to pay for network resources to execute application logic. It's it's more of a speculative asset that, you know, they're the kind of in and out of sort of quickly. How does that, the intersection between the fact that, that this digital asset has, you know, an intrinsic value in terms of being able to spend it to execute business logic on this, this big distributed network, um, yeah. and the... The, the fact that there's so many people interacting with it that simply view it as a as a transactional speculative asset uh, does it does that help the situation or hinder it I mean does it inflate the cost of running things on the network unnecessarily or how do you see all that landscape yeah so that's interesting there's a few different ways to look at that question so I think that speculation is in by and large, um, like a, a net positive. It's, it's in the same way that, you know, interest in owning shares of a, you know, a hot startup or company can help that company to raise capital and become, you know, to grow and be successful. Um, I also think, however, that it helps, it, it, it hinders the in industry and the ecosystem in the mainstream media because it conflates utility with speculation. I think a lot of people, to your point, just assume that this is, um, you know, just a big uh, casino and everyone's sort of gambling by buying tokens and hoping that they go up. And obviously there's a lot more going on behind the scenes and a lot more intrinsic value that's that's being created. Um, in terms of your, your final part of that question, which is, does it inflate network costs? I haven't, I haven't actually done like the definitive research on that, but my, my instinct would be no. And the simple reason for that is that uh, gas fees are a function of um, demand for state, that thing you mentioned earlier, a demand for block space. So if you've got a network that has like a fixed amount of blocks that are getting created and those blocks only fit a certain number of transactions, if there's tons and tons of demand um, for block space in those different blocks, then you're going to see gas gas fees increase. But just buying and selling Ether, most of which, by the way, happens on centralized exchanges like Binance by speculators, is not actually contributing to the demand for gas to run transactions on chain. Um, however, that, that issue that, that uh, you raised, which is, is there greater congestion in those blocks, is an interesting one. Because what's happened in the Ethereum network is largely it's been a victim of its own success in a way and has become extremely congested. And as a result, the fees on the network have increased. Now it could be, this could be transitory, you know, to paraphrase the federal reserve, um, gas fees could go down as the network becomes more robust, which is something that is in the roadmap, but at least until then, a lot of people are looking at other uh, protocols to support application development and to support transactions. And that's why we've seen projects like a Solana, for example, or even be Binance smart chain, BNB, uh, capturing value away from Ethereum recently. Um, and then I would just finally add that 
you know, when it comes to speculation, I think it's easy for people to dismiss um, what's happening in a lot of these different assets because of the sort of eye-watering valuations they see in some of the headlines. And I think that's especially true in NFTs. You know, there's uh, lots of different NFT projects that have become popular with internet personalities and celebrities where they're spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on, you know, scarce cartoon versions of themselves or, or some other figurine. And, you know, I think in general, like it's, people can spend money however they want. But I think for a lot of uh, outsiders looking in, they see that as uh, validation that this is um, speculative mania. But what's unfortunate about that is if you go beneath the surface, that's like a tiny fraction of the $23 billion market in NFTs, at least over the last 18 months, um, that is actually creating all sorts of really creative and, and interesting ways for creators to capture value, for uh, game developers to rethink ownership of virtual goods and whole, all sorts of other applications. And so I do think that it's up to us and it's incumbent on us at the BRI and and, you know, who people who are in the space trying to educate people to help them distinguish between the speculative use cases, valuable as they might be, um, and all of the other use cases, which, you know, I think is where the, um, the real action is. So I'd like to dig down, to, dig down into that in a little more detail. But, but before we do, just in terms of, you know, making sure that everyone understands kind of what the vocabulary is, a lot of people have heard about NFTs. And NFTs is just a an initialism that, you know, that, that stands for non-fungible token, right? Which, yes. of course, kind of suggests that there's something called the fungible token. So just in terms of educating us, can you just give yeah. us a quick description of, of what the difference is and, and why non-fungible tokens are different than fungible tokens? For sure. So NFT stands for non-fungible token, and it's a classic example of this industry choosing just the least appealing kinds of words to describe things. So you called um, it something different I, in blockchain revolution. You called it a crypto collectible, a crypto collectible, crypto collectible, which, the same which, which is a good word. It is, and it, but all, at the same time, it doesn't totally capture um, all the utility of an NFT. It it's, describes one kind of use case. So I actually think NFT is a better term. We just have to ignore it. It's like people don't know what TCPIP stands for. We just got to move on from it, right? Um, so an NFT, um, so if you think about assets like uh, like Bitcoins or dollars or shares in the company, if I've got a dollar and you've got a dollar and we swap those dollars, it doesn't really matter to either of us which dollar we have because they have the same value. They have the same, you know, utility, right? They're fungible. Um, if you have a share of Apple and I have a share of Apple, I can choose to own any common share of Apple. It doesn't really matter which one. Um, with NFTs, it's different. So there are lots of assets in the world where being unique or very scarce is actually important to the value. Um, so for example, art, like the Mona Lisa is not fungible. You could trade a Mona Lisa for a Rembrandt, maybe, but uh, the Mona Lisa for Rembrandt, maybe, but you're not trading a, a thing that is of the same kind, right? So it is a distinct asset. So there are lots of kinds of assets in the world that are distinct from each other. In fact, there probably are more assets that are distinct from each other than ones that are um, of, a, of a certain kind. So what, where we've seen most of the applications in NFTs are in things like art and collectibles, which makes sense. If some artist creates a one-of-one -one digital painting and wants to sell it, uh, an NFT is a useful way of, of creating an authentication. The buyer knows that that's the, that's the authentic version. Um, and it's also true 
NFTs are being used as well in, um, you know, virtual worlds. Like if you've got a character that you play in a video game, that's got a whole bunch of specific attributes that are unique to that person, then that character can be an NFT. But an NFT can also be stuff that's a lot more boring than that. Um, you know, like the title to a home, every house is different. They're, they're, there's a market for houses, but they're not totally fungible. One house is different from the next house. And so NFTs can be a way to represent title of assets like houses. They can be used as a way to represent title for assets like loans. Um, you know, a lot of loans are bespoke and unique. There's lots of terms that are different from the next loan. They can't trade one for the other. And so loans, loan agreements and other sort of financial contracts can also be represented in this way as a, as a programmable NFT. And then, of course, the biggest use case, in my opinion, is actually being using NFTs for identity, for digital identity. Um, you know, Mona Lisa is non-fungible and art is non-fungible. Another thing that's one of one is you and me, right? Um, there's no other you, there's no other me. And so NFTs, for example, are being contemplated for use cases such as soul bound tokens. So S-O-U-L bound tokens. What does that mean? Basically a non-transferable, non-fungible token that is assigned to every individual at birth and over time um, accrues all sorts of information about that person. You know, their, their, uh, their birth records, health records, their uh, financial uh, information, um, other aspects of who they are as a human being. And that is data that they control that's sovereign to them, but then allows them to, you know, open up all sorts of things in the world, right? To open a bank account, to, you know, buy a house, to travel the world, to get access to healthcare and so on and so forth. So NFTs, and again, this is one of those things where I'm describing mostly the use cases for NFTs today, uh, art collectibles, you know, maybe a, a few bespoke assets, financial assets, but ultimately it's, it's going to be, um, really interesting to see how they, how they are, uh, deployed, you know, over the next few years for some of those other use cases, which are not commercialized yet, but I think ultimately could become extremely important. Yeah. So, I mean, you just hit on, I think kind of the big question here is that, you know, while having these digital assets sounds like you know, this is a very powerful primitive, right? It's a building block that we can use in many situations and build all kinds of interesting systems on top of them. You just talked about a very important kind of uh, use case, which is the digital identity use case. And uh, I can well imagine all the various different configurations of systems that could, you know, leverage that kind of token and create a lot of value. And I know there's, uh, there's geographies, uh, I think, um, in Korea or Japan, they're making a really big push around this, and they believe that that about three percent of their GDP will be the economic value of their digital assets. Uh, sorry, their digital yeah. identity um, system, which is an enormous amount of value. Yeah. Uh, so that's kind of exciting. But I'm thinking of some of the other places, and you know, one of the areas that uh, I've been doing a lot of research around is on supply chains, and supply chains. You know, I think the pandemic really exposed just how fragile some of these supply chains are and um, how rigid they are. And it's become abundantly clear that we need to have a lot more visibility and they need to be a lot more adaptive. And governments are going to want to find out ways of, uh, um, of you know, interacting with these systems. So uh, what, what's, how do you see them playing in this in this space and... And, and how are we going to incorporate things like, you talked about carbon before, some of the scope three externalities? I mean, do you, do you really see it changing that, that part of our world? Well, it's a great question. And I can't say for sure. I think ultimately, um, you know, a token 
is a digital medium for value. Um, so I think it really does work best when you're describing things that can be abstracted into the digital world. So you've mentioned a couple times, um, actually some great formulations, which is that these networks execute business logic on a distributed network. And I think that that business logic works best when we're talking about intangible things, right? And uh, that could be stocks or bonds or carbon credits, um, which are ultimately just entries in a ledger. Um, they can also be represented uh, you know, transactions in virtual goods, um, virtual assets, virtual collectibles, uh, currencies, and all sorts of other things. Where it starts to become a bit trickier, I actually think, is when we're when with the, the intersection of um, these this virtual tool set and the physical world. So the, the opportunity for supply chains is that um, there's all these different stakeholders in a supply chain or so in, in a supply network, right? It's not really a chain. Um, and everybody would like to be operating on the same information that they can all trust and know is timely and accurate. And so the idea of having a distributed ledger that has all that information in it that suppliers and vendors and and custodians or you know yes custodians and transfer agents and and um and customs houses and all these other stakeholders uh can see and trust is really appealing um but ultimately what we're doing is tracking you know physical good so there's a there's a couple of things that i think where where um, I think there's some questions that need answers and I'm not the expert on this stuff, just to be clear. Um, but you know, around the provenance of assets, you know, you could say that that thing came from the place where it came from, but who's to say that, um, you know, the data that's going in or, or the product that's going in is, is in fact the, the product that you think it is. Um, you know, and then, and then, um, at the, at the end state, uh, you know, when those, when those assets are acquired, um, everyone can trust that the information is accurate, I guess, assuming that there's some sensor on the device that has been tampered with, right? And so uh, there's all these different things that I, I'm not sure what the answer is. I'm sure there is an answer, Douglas, um, but it's not, it's almost not really for me to, to comment on it. Uh, we actually have a book called Supply Chain Revolution, which probably answers, I have to go back and revisit it, but probably answers my, my concerns or questions in far greater detail and more eloquently than I ever could. Um, so maybe that's that's where you should be directing people to, uh, to well, check that's, it out. That's, that's, well, that's a great idea. But, but one, one point that I think is important is that implicit in what you were saying, is that these digital assets um, have as part of their intrinsic capability the fact that they are programmable, which means yes. that they can be automated. And, you know, it's not just a matter of the supply chain getting greater visibility, but that all kinds of conditional logic can be associated with how assets move around the network. And these things become inherently more intelligent. I mean, the entire system becomes more intelligent. Yeah, absolutely. Well, well, I think that's right. I mean, and, and then, uh, you know, who am I to say that something is not feasible? It's more just that it can't, I haven't, there's not the creativity to imagine how it could work ultimately, right? Um, and, and I think that's, that's in a way, that's a convenient cop-out that some people use with new technologies. They say, never, never confuse the first uh, example of the technology with what it will ultimately become. You know, the first killer app for the internet was not email, or sorry, the, the main, the, you know, the big killer app for the internet was not email, it was the web browser, it was you know, the web is a communications and collaboration tool. Um, and maybe with, with blockchains, the first killer app is not necessarily Bitcoin. There are all these other use cases in other industries, uh, but that's true. But also you have to be able to develop the roadmap and, and into how we get to that, that point. Right. And you have to be able to answer the hard questions and the implementation challenges, about how that comes about. Well, I have a whole long list of questions and we could continue this conversation for many, many hours. Um, and, and we have had versions of this conversation for many, many hours. 
Thank you, Alex. That was really fascinating. And thank you all for joining us for this episode of W3B Talks. You can find research on this topic and other topics at blockchainresearchinstitute.org. I'm your host, Doug Heinzman. We hope you'll join us for our next episode of W3B Talks. 